turn to Revelation chapter 2. I'm going to be looking this morning, at least starting looking at the five churches of Revelation. Uh, I've been thinking about doing this before I get to Second Peter, and I thought it was good because I have one more message on my, my last set of messages that I haven't done yet, but I want to do these first before I do that. So we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 through 7. Now I want you to look at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1 of Revelation. Verse number 5 and 6, excuse me, 5 and 6 of chapter 1. In verse 5 it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be king, a kingdom, priest, to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we approach your word, we know, Lord, that it is the word that comes from the King, Jesus. So I pray, Lord, because of that, make us very attentive to it. Pray, Lord, we would listen with listening ears. Remove the distractions from our mind. And I pray, Lord, that we would take in and drink in the word of God. And then what we see and hear here, we would actually apply it to ourselves, examine ourselves, and then make the appropriate changes as we listen to the spirit of God from the word of God today. And I pray in Christ's name, amen. A story, I came across a story that was told of a wealthy man who lost his wife when their only child was young. A housekeeper was hired to take care of the boy who lived only into his teens and then he died. Heartbroken, the, the rich man, uh, and because of his second loss, and then he himself, a short time later, died. No will could be found since there was no relatives and it looked like the state was going to get his whole fortune. The man's personal belongings, including his mansion, were put up for sale. The old housekeeper had very little money, but there was one thing she wanted. There was a picture that hung in the, in, on the wall in the hallway a photo of the boy that she loved and nurtured for a short period of time. When the items were sold, nobody else wanted the picture. So she bought it for a few pennies. Taking it home, she began to clean it up and polish the glass. And as she took it apart, a piece of paper fell from out from it. It was the man's will. And it stated that all his wealth should, be, should go to the one who loved his son enough to buy this picture. Now, the legacy of heaven and the inexhaustible riches of God's love belong to all who trust and love his son. Pursuing our relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important goal of the Christian life. Here in Revelation chapter 2, the Ephesian church got knocked off their course by good and noble and spiritual pursuits. In fact, they were doing things that were vital and important to the ministry of the church. If you look at chapter 2, verse number 1, 
It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, and he goes on to tell us what that's going to mean. So to get a better understanding of the imagery in this part of Revelation, chapter 1, we have to go back to chapter 1, and then we'll see that the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3 will find it more meaning in that. Now, even though this is Revelation in the first century, uh, there's a lot of uh, clear uh, understanding of the first parts of Revelation. Emphasized in our passage of Scripture is the sovereignty of lampstands and hold the churches. Is there some? All right, hopefully that don't happen again. So in Revelation, we, there's an emphasis on the sovereignty of the head as he walks among the lampstands and holds the seven stars within his right hand, the place of authority and honor. So there's several important symbols that we can't miss before we go any further. The first symbol is in verse number 12. It says this, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, here we have a compound symbol, seven golden lampstands. The symbol, the basic symbol for a lampstand is really a candlestick holder or, of course, a stand that held an oil lamp. Now, you notice that he did not see a light but saw something that held the lamp. So the book of Revelation interprets for us here in verse number 20 of chapter 1, it says, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the lampstand represents a church. So here is revelation from God concerning the church. And he says that the church is like a lampstand. Now why does he say that? Well, a lampstand holds the light. So the church holds the light and shares the light in its area that God assigns to it. Now, what are you going to do with a light if a light goes out? If it no longer gives light, what do you do with a light? What do you do with a light bulb when a light bulb burns out? You throw it away. That's what you do. Well, you, you are going to re remove it, and you're going to throw it away. And you're going to hear in our passage, when I get to it, if you do not bear the light, then I will remove your lampstand. If you look at Revelation, the end of verse 5 of Revelation chapter 2, it says this, Therefore remember, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, the second symbol is the symbol, the lampstand is, is, of course, made not of wood or of stone or silver. It's made of gold. Gold is a symbol of being precious, being valued. So, in other words, the lampstand's mission, which is the church, is to hold the light and share it, not keep it to yourself. The gold is the value of the church, that the church of Jesus Christ is precious and valuable to him. Now, the reason why I read Revelation chapter 1, verse number 5, is because it says there, he 
who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. See, Jesus is saying, I love my church. I love those who have been redeemed by me. I love them. And so therefore he loves his church. Another symbol is the number seven. Seven here represents the church in the sense that it's seven is the number of completion. So here it re- represents the entire church, even though only seven churches are going to be discussed in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. It represents the whole church. Whose main mission is to share the light. So the next thing John does is say, well, who is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand? Well, it's none other than Jesus Christ. In fact, look what it says in chapter 1, verse number 13. It gives us his, the position of the one who holds the stars. It says in Revelation 13, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 13, and in the middle of the lampstands, now that's the middle of the churches, I saw one like a son of man. So in the vision, there is one standing in the middle as if the churches were in a circle and he is standing in the center of that circle. And of course, one like the Son of Man, that is, of course, comes from Daniel. Where Daniel says, I kept looking in the night vision and behold, with clouds of heaven, one like a Son of Man was coming And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was present before him. So the term Son of Man is an important designation because this term refers to Jesus Christ. It is a term Jesus used to link himself to the prophecy of Daniel in the New Testament. And it is almost in every case used to his title in the second coming. Daniel chapter 8, verse 17 says, The Son of Man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. So Jesus, one like a Son of Man, is seen symbolically in the middle of his church. And now we watch and and see what it says about the Lord Jesus, the head of the church. It describes in Revelation 1, verse 13, his person. It says he's clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. Now, who wears a garment like that? Well, a high priest wears it. A king wears it. A prophet wears it. And a judge wears it. Jesus is all those things. So in other words, his position is high and he has dignity and he has absolute exaltation. This one is of old age and wisdom where it says in verse 14, it says his head, is, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. That means he has absolute wisdom, total wisdom. And then in verse number 14, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, meaning he is absolutely omniscient. In verse number 15 of chapter 1, his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace. Bronze and brass represent uh, symbols of judgment and sin. His feet, the feet of a king sitting on his throne, ready to judge anyone being addressed or possibly condemned will fall and bow low to the feet of a king. So this one who speaks, he speaks with absolute authority. His voice is not only just loud, it has force to it, it has command to it, it has finality about it, and therefore the audience should be ready to listen. In other words, you better listen. Because it says in verse 15 of chapter 1, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. And then it describes his work in verse 16 of chapter 1. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, 
and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So what is he doing? What is Jesus doing? The Son of Man is standing in the middle of the seven churches, has in his right hand seven stars, and Jesus has them all in his hand, this star, this it's a star for this church, and this star is for that church, and so on and so forth. All the stars are in his hand. And again, what are the seven stars? Verse number 20 of Revelation chapter 1, as for the mystery, the seven stars which you saw in my right hand in the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. See, the word angel don't let it throw you off. It really is the word messenger or the one who is sent. So let's just say that this is a human being, such as elders and pastors in a local church. Now, why are the letters addressed to the messengers of the churches? What you have is this. Jesus is holding the leader of this church in his hand, and he speaks through him to the church. So each church is like a little theocracy where Jesus is the head, and he speaks through some human leadership. He is holding the stars of the churches and thus controls the churches. So as a leader goes, so goes the church. So, brethren, it's an awful responsibility to be a pastor and an elder of a church. I and my fellow lay elders have often felt the crushing weight of the responsibility on our shoulders. When the the Lord first called me to preach and pastor, I did not want to do it. I fought my calling for a while. I still often feel my deep inadequacies and weaknesses and fears. And I say to myself, how can I I continue on and shepherd and preach? Especially in a place I myself have ministered for such a long time. Satan is surely, he surely knows how to send his fiery missiles towards me and, and this church. He has tried these many years to divide and conquer. He has been somewhat successful in some instances. He has not let up the whole time that I have been here. It is only the Lord that has kept me standing and continuing. I have felt that the right hand of my Lord Jesus Christ keeping me in perfect rest. He has provided protection. He has provided the strength and power for continuing. I have tasted and have learned that the Lord is good, and he deserves all the glory for all that has and will be accomplished. So there is a seriousness of making certain, this is the whole church, of making certain that we are all pleasing Jesus Christ, who we see in these scriptures, The reason why is he's standing in our midst. That's what it's saying. Oh, brethren, how much we need your prayers and your support and your cooperation and your patience and your understanding. How much we need to submit to the word of God so that the spirit can make you Christ-like. How much we need you to use your gifts to minister in the body, how much we need you to consider this church, your family, and grow in your faithfulness towards God and love towards one another, how much we need to love the Lord Jesus and love each other and love the lost so that our church body can get through the growing pains and go on to maturity So the responsibility the Lord's given us is to make sure we as a lampstand keep holding up the light so the rest of the world can see it.
In fact, the Lord speaks in verse 16 with authority to the churches. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, chapter 1, verse 16, and then he displays his glory to and through the churches, in verse 16, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, could you imagine the Apostle John getting this vision from God? How would he, how would he respond to it? Lord, well, look how he responds. Chapter 1, verse 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last, the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. That's a message in and of itself right there. But see, that's who's walking amongst the churches. You can make no mistake in verse number 17 and 18, it never mentions Jesus. But you have, if you know the word of God, you know that is Jesus. Because that's what he did. That was his mission. That was his work. So chapters 1, 2, and 3 all go together in Revelation. The seven churches of Asia selected from a greater number than existing are each analyzed by the Lord and their spiritual condition is laid bare before them. And Christ follows really a general pattern of speaking to each church. Two exceptions are notable. However, each church as a whole, is commended except two, Sardis and Laodicea. Each church as a whole is condemned except two, Samarina and Philadelphia. So he says to the Apostle John, I would like to speak to the church. And when you get it, John, then tell it to the churches. The seven letters to the seven churches, that's what we find in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. This is what ought to be, in other words, in the church. This is the pattern for all churches, all church ministry. And Jesus gives the state of the church, whether by praise or promise, whether by rebuke or warning. Therefore, as the Lord walks among his churches, he examines them. He continually knows their work. He knows their sufferings. He knows their sins. His eyes are as a flaming fire so that he sees with a penetrating discernment and an accuracy to which no one can attain. No human. If we were to judge the church, we would be too lenient. Or we would judge inaccurately. Because we would lack the knowledge that it takes to judge the church. Or we would judge too severely. See, we must judge using the scripture. That's what we must do. So only Christ can judge his church properly. And be sure of this, he does. As the Lord examines the first church in the list of seven, Ephesus, the Lord first gives a commendation to them. Secondly, he gives a condemnation to them. Thirdly, he gives counsel to them. And then lastly, he challenges them. And that's the pattern that the Lord uses. Now, the background of the church at Ephesus, we have to consider that for just a, a moment. Ephesus was a thriving commercial city in Asia Minor, today modern-day Turkey. Its religious life centered around the worship of the Greek goddess Artemis. Her temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. Like other cities, it had its own problems. Problem of crime, a big problem of immorality. And in spite of these conditions, the gospel flourished 
there under the ministries of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John. Now, let's look this morning at the commendation that Jesus perceives in this church. Verses 2 and 3, we notice what it says. The first thing, in verse number 2, it's a hard-working church. Look what it says. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance. See, they, they were a church of good deeds and labored to the point of exhaustion and enduring even burden with great patience. Secondly, in verse 2, they were a separated church and that you cannot tolerate evil men. So they couldn't bear evil. They were unwilling to put up with evil people, meaning they were a church that did church discipline. Also, they were a pure church. Notice in verse number 2, it says, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So they were a church that exposed unsound, heretical teaching, and then they were a church in verse number 6, where it says, yet this you you do have that you hate, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans, I'll explain that in a later message of what their sins were, but basically it had to do with immorality. They were enduring church, verse number 3, chapter 2. It says, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So they were an enduring church. They were a tough church. And then they were a church that hated what God hated. It says in verse 6, which I just read, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. So all these things, we can conclude that these things, with these things that the Ephesian church was a biblically orthodox church, strong convictions. She could not yield the faith that they had or play a traitor to her Lord. They exalted its discipline. They were sound in faith. They were showed accuracy towards heretics. So a church may have every wheel turning and the machinery, the machinery of ministry moving at a steady rate, and yet something very important may escape their notice. I believe that our church can be commended for these things. We have been growing in sound doctrine and have been getting better at organization of our time and ministries. We should always be striving in these areas, but we should always be diligent and careful to make sure that the very important things do not escape our notice. And notice in our next passage, the Lord's assessment of what does not please him. This is the thing that will ruin us. Scripture will be telling us about the kinds of things that Jesus approves of in the church and the kinds of things he disapproves us and rebukes his church in the areas that need rebuke. So these are the kind of things that we ought to love, and these are the kind of things that we ought to hate. So what is the condemnation? That was the commendation. Now, what is the condemnation that Christ pronounces? Look at verse number 4. It says this, But I have this against you. You have left your first love. You got that, brethren? This I have against you. An Orthodox church, a church knowing to do everything they're supposed to be doing, but in doing that, they've drifted away. A church can be Orthodox in all their behavior and ministries and yet lack love. A.T. Robinson said, This early love, proof of the new life in Christ, 
had cooled off in spite of their doctrinal purity. So the great physician, Jesus Christ, puts his finger right on the problem. Why does he do that? Because he's right in the middle of the church. He sees everything going on. He knows what's really happening. And so he can diagnose the problem and the condition. And, of course, here he brings a condemnation. And it's a singular condemnation, but it is a very, very serious one. I think it's the most serious condemnation that can be brought against any church. Declining love. Why why are we saved anyway? Why does anybody get saved? They get saved so they can love Christ and love what he did for us, right? And then live for him. That's the whole, that's the whole key to the Christian life. If you're going to hate sin, it's because you love Christ. If you're going to be obedient, it's because you love Christ. See, all those things are necessary, and here the Lord says, I am not pleased. And this is no complaint of an enemy, but a dear complaint of a dear wounded friend will we grieve Emmanuel will we grieve him whose heart was pierced for our redemption brothers and sisters can you and I let Jesus find out that our love in our heart toward him is departing that we're just going through the motions that we're just showing up that we are so precise in our doctrine, it doesn't bleed out of our life or change our heart. See, the Ephesian church, along the way of running the Christian race and fighting the Christian battle, got distracted away from devotion to Jesus Christ in other words, they, they stopped pursuing the goal of the Christian life, the goal of Christ's likeness through a personal, ongoing relationship to Christ. We don't want to become the church of loveless orthodoxy. We don't ever want to go there. See, the Greek term here in our passage of Scripture for you left, left, that word is, means actually to abandon, to, to neglect, that these believers abandon or departed from their first love for something else. And remember, that always happens. Be sure of this, brethren. Anytime we depart from our first love, we depart in our affections to another object because that's who we are as human beings. In fact, remember, Timothy brought, brought that out. Paul, I mean, Paul brought that out to young Timothy in the epistles, uh, pastoral epistles, where he says, listen, men will be lovers of self. So, see, what happens is that when you depart from the intimate relationship you should have with Jesus Christ in loving him, you depart to some kind of self-love. Or... As he says in Timothy, or you become a lover of possessions and money that satisfies your self-wants. Or you become just a lover of pleasure instead of a lover of God. And really, when you become a pleasure lover, there's no, left, there's no love left for anything else. So a church who moves away from its first love will be susceptible to develop misplaced affections and will be at risk of being cold-hearted and even hard-hearted. Many things uh, can easily be given the throne of your heart and crowd out the affections that we should have for God for something else. If our love has grown the least bit cold, then we have done a terrible wrong toward our best and closest friend. Can there be greater grief in the church than our Lord Jesus should find this against us? That we have left our first love? See, God takes special notice of the way and manner in which his people think of him and how they attend services and worship. He sees all of it going on 
He knows what's going on in your home. He knows what's going on in your marriages. He knows what's going on behind closed doors. See, when we come together, we can all say everything's fine, well, and dandy. And yet it's not in our heart. See, this is what's going on here. A love for Christ will go everywhere you go. It will permeate every part of your life. And your desire, when you love something, you know what? You want to spend time with it. And when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. So if we really love Jesus, when we get out of here and go home and get back into whatever we're doing on Monday morning, you'll love Jesus then too. And Tuesday all the way through the week. It was D.A. Carson who said that this is like uh, a comparison to marriage. He said this, like a married couple who feel helpless while their marriage grows cold and distant from want of attention, even while it retains its formal boundaries and predictable duties, so Christians may feel helpless while the hot flame of their Christian love dies down to an ash-coated ember. And the while they deny no cardinal truth, nor even relinquish their ongoing Christian responsibilities. They're there. They show up. They're at worship. They're at church. They're doing everything they know they ought to be doing. But inside, they're dying. And they know it. And they feel they cannot escape. Have you ever felt like that as a Christian? Cold. You, you know all the truth. You've been around the Bible a long time. And you're just... Man, I just don't have the spark anymore. Man, I just don't. I'm not into it anymore. That, that's what the Lord is saying here. He's, he's saying that if I did what I did for you and loved you, washed away your sin so you could be right with me, and you're going to just drift off? This is a grievous sin for the church. Do you realize that if you don't love like this, there is no, that your lampstand cannot hold up the light. There's no more light. The light is just sputtering in darkness. It's ready to go out. See, loving the church is important for at least five biblical reasons. First of all, it's because the great commandment says that. When Jesus was asked the question by the Jewish scribes, Jesus answered from the Old Testament Torah, and he said, gave him the Shema in Deuteronomy, and he says what? What is the great commandment? The foremost is to hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second reason Biblical reason for love is because of the second commandment, which is just like the first one. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Do you see what happens is when somebody's not loving Christ and growing in their love for Christ, they're laying aside the two greatest commandments. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what I say. Hearts which desire to be obedient not to cold law, but to Christ, in whom they are at least supposed to be affectionately in love with. So fulfilling the two great commandments. So Christ's followers are to be marked by devotion to God and by sacrificial service to their neighbors. Third reason would be because true discipleship requires denying self and loving him above all else. What does it say to us in Mark chapter 10? And then the other Gospels, verse 37 and 38. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. See, in other words... Part of being discipleship is denying yourself to love Christ. Christ should be our first object of love before husbands, before wives, wives before husbands, parents before children, or any other thing. 
Jesus Christ is always the key to any other part of our life. If people really love Christ, there would be no counseling. Wouldn't need it. There would be no divorce. There would be no leaving the church. Because the love of Christ would constrain us so much that we would do what we know we had to do, and we would do it out of a heart of affection, not just duty. Also, because he left his disciples and followers a new commandment. It says in 1 John, and a new commandment I give you. What's the new commandment, which is really an old commandment? That you shall love one another, even as I have loved you, and you also love one another. And then, why else? Is it biblical? Because the attribute of God that should be communicated through our lives to others is what? What does it say in 1 John? The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then John, 1 John 1, chapter 4, verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love, abides in God, and God abides in him. See, all love is but a reflection and a shadow of the intra-Trinitarian love that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have for each other. So how are we doing? How are we doing as far as growing in biblical love? Because love is the badge of the Christian community. A Christian may advance in many areas of their Christian life, but without growth in the most important Christian distinctive, that being love, it profits them nothing. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. Right? You can be the best speaker, have the mo- be the most gifted, but if you are not doing it out of a heart of love, You're just a a noisy symbol. So see, when love begins to diminish and grow cold, our sin increasingly manifests itself, and we look unlike Jesus when that happens. This is how diminishing love looks. We lose patience easily instead of love suffering long. Unkindness becomes common, yet love is kind. Sinful envy and bitterness are displayed, yet love does not envy. We defend ourselves when confronted of our lack of love, and yet love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. We become less courteous and more rude, and yet love does not behave rudely. We start trumping our rights over others, yet love does not seek its own. We become easily angered, yet biblical love is not provoked. We find, we we fault find, fault finding becomes frequent, and yet love keeps no black book of wrongs and thinks no evil of the person. Projects become more important than people. Unwilling to confront when necessary, so therefore no one's looking at sin. And unconcerned for the lost. See, those growing in Jesus' kind of love will not only say loving words, but also do loving deeds just as he did. It is the direction of your life to honor and love God and love and honor, give love and honor to your neighbor. Commentary and professor Robert Thomas said, Jesus calls members to return to the actions prompted by love that they, as a church, had formerly known. So that brings me back to Revelation chapter 2, verse number 5. Here's the counsel that the Lord gives. Okay, there is the condemnation. It's pretty blatant that this is their sin. What does he tell them? Well, he gives them a threefold counsel. The first fold, the first part point of the counsel is this in verse 5, remember. Look what it says, therefore remember 
from where you have fallen. See, the church had lost their bearings and needed to regain them. The church's previous condition is alluded to in this way. From where you have fallen, their departure from their first love is now viewed as a fall from their previous position. Another way we can say it is that they backslid. And when we backslide, it is not the Lord who has moved or changed his love toward us. It is we who have moved away from the Lord. So here's the subtle truth. Love can grow cold while outward religious performance still appears to be acceptable and even praiseworthy. It is easy to be satisfied with religious performance. It's easy to have a checklist. I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. I've attended that, I've attended that, I've attended that. But what did Jesus say to the religious leaders of his day? He said this, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe and mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet you disregard justice and love, the love of God. He said to them, But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You need to do all of it. What I commend you for and what you're condemned for, you need to do all of it. The danger and the problem is external religious performance can subtly replace true inner faith and heartfelt love. Mark it down, Christian. The greatest danger to any church is declining love. Why? Because it displeases the Lord. Remember, in this passage of Scripture, is an imperative command. Remember means to recall your faithfulness of early years and take inventory. Remember when you first came to Christ and he saved you and he was your joy and your love and your life. Recall the joys and the attitudes and the experiences that went with that. I want to know more of Jesus and his word was the thought back then. At one time, nothing could divert your attention from him. You were never weary of hearing of him and hearing from him. You were once zealous to serve him and tell everyone you could about what Jesus had done in your life. You could not get enough of Christ and the gospel, very comparable to a marriage relationship. If your marriage gets cool, Go back and remember the day you got married. The day you got married, you weren't sad. You weren't loathing that day. You were happy. You were rejoicing. It's a new life. It's a new beginning. Getting together, get to know each other, and you're remembering all the things you went through and all the things you learned. And if Christ is in your life, you realize that all those things he's been teaching you in that tremendous sanctifying relationship of a husband, two sinners getting together and getting married with all the baggage they bring in together, right? But if you keep Christ first and he's your first love and your wife's first love is Christ and your first love is Christ, you know what? You're going to be able to overcome every obstacle, every problem, every issue that comes because you're in love with Christ. And that means you're in love with his word and your word is now transforming your mind and sanctifying you, making more like him. But when declining love comes, what happens? Well, sermons are too long now. Your Christian life is kind of dull. You have a spiritual appetite, but only for new things. Once you were never displeased with Jesus, but because of some sickness some loss of a job, some family problems that came in or disappointments in your life, you've lost interest and you've cooled off. At first you would have blessed his name for everything and given him thanks, but now you grumbled in your homes at the slightest problem. You were once consecrated to him in zealous 
joyful service. When you said, I want to serve the Lord, whatever it takes. See, when all those things happen, and they don't happen anymore, it all drips of departing love. Something is wrong in your heart. And signs of departing love in, in our own assembly can be seen in several things. Several things will become obvious. If you're not serious and, and prepared for a worship service, if you never desire to pray with your brethren in public prayer meetings, if ministries are, are only occupied by a few faithful workers and can't get any more to serve, if you serve more out of duty and obligation than love for the brethren and love for the Lord when you serve with half-hearted initiative. Remember the beginning, he's saying. Remember the beginning and compare them with the present state of your heart and go back to that. For the Ephesian church, the way forward was going backward. Then ask yourself this, self How am I really faring with you, Lord? Have I fallen in my love for you in any measure at all? If I have, show me. Because I don't want to be there. I want to have a burning heart for Christ till the day I die. I want to know more of him because I know I don't know more of him. I want to throw all of it on a pile of garbage for the sake of knowing Christ. That's what Paul said. How do you come to a place like that? You don't come to a place like that the first day you become a believer. You grow to that place. Because you know what? There's no return. I can't go backwards. I don't want anything in my past. You shouldn't either. I want to go forward. Whatever may come, I want to go forward and I want to live my life wholeheartedly for the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing he says is, remember. Look at the second thing he says in verse number 5 of chapter 2. He says this, therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent. Second thing he says is repent. That's, that's the word we know. Remembering is first, and it is followed by another imperative command, and that is repent. The Lord's counsel is by way of a command, and here it is, an urgent appeal to an instant change of attitude, of thinking, of conduct, before it's too late, before your light goes out. As a church, and remember, there's always four things that are included in repentance. You have to name your sin. In this case, it's declining love. And then you have to prove you dropped it. Because it says in Scripture, bring forth fruits keeping with repentance. And then you have to replace your sin with righteous behavior. In this case, go back to the beginning when it all started. And go back to that new, fresh love that you had. And then there is a third thing he tells them, and it's this, to return and repeat. It says in verse 5, and do the deed you did at first. It doesn't say do more things and add it to what you're already doing. That's not what he says. He says go do the things you stopped doing and do them first. Because that relationship that you have with me is the most important relationship that you'll ever have. So this is a practice, a practical repentance, for in doing the first works, you will prove that you have come back to your first love. Not do more things. It refers here to the quality of love. Duty motivated by transparent love for the Lord and one another. The church finding delight again in, two, in the two greatest commandments. Love God with the whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And here is the next thing, the fourth 
thing the Lord says. He's the challenge he gives. And he persuades them in the challenge in verse number, the last part of verse number five. He says, or else I will come to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Okay, you see your sin. I told you what to do with it. Now what are you going to do? You're going to walk out of there and nothing's going to change. Right? See, the Lord is, is wanting this church not to do that. Now, I'm not preaching this message because I think that our church is declining in love. This is a warning that we don't decline in love. That we keep going. Let our love... Love in Scripture should always be pictured like this. Here's a glass, and someone's pouring out of a pitcher into that glass, and it's just overflowing the glass all the time. You never get to the place where you arrive and you loved enough. It should always be overflowing and it should be evident in how we are responding to the Lord and how we are responding to each other. So the Lord persuades them with a threat. I will remove your lampstand if you do not repent. He tells them if they don't repent, I will cut down the lampstand that holds the light. So it will be unable to hold the light and share the light in its geographical area. The one great mission of the church will be shut down by the Lord himself in that local body unless they repent. Christ can really do no other. Christ cannot allow his church to be apart from love. If the first love has been abandoned and there is no repentance, then the church shall be left in darkness. And they'll become a wedding venue. And they'll be scattered all over the place. Now this may mean the Lord removes the faithful ministers who bring the word of God, removes them to another place. It may also include that the Lord will cut loose its usefulness to preserve the truth if love does not return. Further, it could mean the Lord, if he wills, takes away the church, her very existence he takes away from the church. He closes the doors. I think the Lord's closed a lot of doors. You see abandoned churches, well, we're talking about buildings, but at one time people were in those buildings. Abandoning and just closing them up and they're becoming historical sites and other restaurants and art galleries and museums and whatnot because what happened in, in that church? Now you may be wondering about now, what happened to the Ephesian church? Did they repent of their sin, of declining love? Did they turn to the Lord and obey the Lord's command? Did they do that? I would hope they would. How would we know they did? Well, thank the Lord, we do know. It doesn't say it in, in this passage of Scripture. But in the beginning of the second century, the church father, that means the church fathers were, were the disciples of the apostles. right? Ignatius was the overseer of the church at Antioch in Syria, and he was arrested for his faith, and he was being sent to Rome by uh, a Roman guard. And while on his journey to Rome, he wrote seven letters. We have all those seven letters. One of the letters was written to the church at Ephesus. On the way to Rome... The guards stopped at Samarna. That's one of the seven churches. While at Samarna, the church at Ephesus sent a delegation of brothers to encourage and strengthen Ignatius as he faced martyrdom in Rome. So uplifted was he by their visit, Ignatius wrote a letter thanking them for their thoughtfulness and care. And in this letter, he praised their loving attitude, and he said that this church is characterized by faith in the love of Christ Jesus our Savior. So you know what that says? 
They repented. They repented. They listened. They got it together. They made sure that sin wasn't being wasn't being uh, committed anymore. Now, unfortunately, Ephesus is gone today. There's nothing but ruins to be found. But they remembered, they repented, and they did their first works where they slipped from. And so what does the Lord do now? He persuades them with a promise. He says in verse number 7 of chapter 2, And he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. In other words, the Lord's promise to those who continue, I will bring you closer to the center, to the very tree of life that is in the presence of God. See, brethren, we need to heed the message the Lord communicates to his churches so we remain a light-bearing community of obedient believers who loves Christ. So do we hear? Do we see? Jesus gives counsel to his church so that they, as light-bearers, can fulfill their mission right to the end. And we know this, that when people do return from this coldness and from this departure from their first love, they will return. When they return to, in, to intimacy for Christ, it will be because they realize they cannot be apart from the one they love long. Just like we cannot be apart from someone we love long. If you love someone, you can't be long apart. Your desire to see the object of your love will become so intense, you will sigh until the day when you lay your eyes on your love. It was King David who said this, My soul longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sang for joy to the living God. His passion is seen in his heart. Also, those who return to intimacy for Christ will realize life without intimacy is empty, vain, and lifeless. You'll be like a dead fish, flapping a little while, and then nothing. See, things we love, we cannot be without. So a person who deeply loves God all of life will be undone and empty without him. In other words, they'll say, there's no reason for living. If my Lord is not first in my life, there's no reason for living. It was Psalm 143 that says, come quickly, Lord. And answer me, for my depression deepens. Don't turn away from me, or I will die. You, you get that feeling in the Psalms that, listen, Lord, I have to be in your presence. i got to be in your courts. I would rather be anywhere else. I'd rather be in your courts than anywhere else. On the, he was a king. He could have anything he wants, and yet that's how he felt in his heart. See, that's... That's what happens when you have intimacy with Christ. And then those who return to intimacy with Christ realize that each day they do not know him enough. They realize they don't know him enough, and they also realize that they're not like him enough. That's why Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the, at the end of his life, he says that. Don't know you enough, Lord. I want to know more. I want to know more. See, what happens is that the Lord gives us desire. Why? Because someday we're going to be in his presence. He's preparing us for his presence. That's all we want. If we don't want the Lord here, why would we want him in heaven? It starts here. 
And I think that those who return to intimacy for Christ will realize they must love what Jesus loves. Jesus loves his church. He loves his people. When they gather to hear the word preached, when his people humble themselves and come together and pray, when his people fellowship together with each other, when his people do not neglect the Lord's table, when his people seek the lost and are constrained by the love of Christ, he's pleased. Because that's what's going to drive us to be a witness. I must ask, when people visit our church, do they find a warm, friendly, welcoming atmosphere that demonstrates love for all people? Do they sense Christ-like compassion and the kind of loving family community envisioned in the New Testament writers? Do Do they see genuine care for one another's needs? Christian hospitality and unselfish generosity? Do they observe in the Lord spiritual vitality, singing from the heart, and people reaching out to minister to a suffering world? Do they sense God in this place? Because we are passionately worshiping and loving our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where the passion comes from. That's what the Spirit of God, he sheds the love of God abroad in our heart, that it comes out of us. I pray that visitors would never meet just an impersonal gathering of people, that they would never sense unfriendliness or indifference, that they would never see a proud, critical spirit, that they would never see an angry, contentious group of people, never. We must never forget there is always one who walks among the churches. Unseen, but all-seeing, and that's our Lord Jesus Christ. So how might the Lord evaluate our local church today? How might he do that? How might he evaluate your life? Because you're part of the church. You're part of the body. How might he evaluate your life right now? I pray that we would heed the advice here. Watch our hearts. And if we detect even the slightest cooling off, that we would remember, we would repent, we would do the first works, and we would love the Lord and his people. Let's pray. Lord, let us hear your warning that we at Calvary would keep ourselves in the love of God, as it says in Jude, that our relationships with you will grow in intimacy that our love for the brethren and people would be a reality and our appetite will be kindled for your word, for prayer, for fellowship, for witnessing. And I pray, Lord, that our intimacy with you every day would only increase and get better and better. So, Lord, help us. We need the Spirit of God's help to maintain this part of our walk. And I pray as you do that, Lord, that you would be glorified and that our church would always be a lampstand that holds up the light so others who have not seen the light yet can see it and be saved, and then they could be loved by our Lord too. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. <laughs>